Hi, I'm Jack Cush. I'm here at RWCS 2019 in Maui. We're going over the poster sessions with the fellows, and I'm here with Allison Wilden. Allison, where are you from? I'm originally from Indiana, but I'm currently training in Milwaukee, Wisconsin at Medical College of Wisconsin. Okay. You've got a really interesting poster here, which I think would confuse most doctors, and that is GPA as a diagnosis, but ANCA negative. Tell me about the case. Yeah, that's correct. So we had a kind of an unusual case of an atypical demographic in a gentleman with limited GPA, limited only to the lungs, and it was ANCA negative. Um, he presented with about four months of this dry cough and then about a month of this pneumonia that wasn't responding to broad-spectrum antibiotics or antifungals, had a completely negative infectious workup um, and just wasn't responding. So we had a very broad differential diagnosis, and we were working him up um, and eventually got a biopsy, which showed um, uh, demonstrated granulomatous inflammation in the lung and vasculitis, consistent with GPA. This is a, a transthoracic needle, or is this a, you went for tissue? Uh, we went for tissue. He had a wedge biopsy. Okay, good. And um, up until that point, describe like how sick the patient was. What was what, his main symptoms? Were respiratory, and that's it. Respiratory. Um, he had uh, he had progressive shortness of breath and cough. Um, eventually, by the time he presented to us, he was requiring oxygen, um, and he was febrile. He was tachycardic. Um, he ended up intubated after his wedge resection as well. So is this a case where? when the pulmonologists don't know what to do, they call the rheumatologist, and that, that's how you got involved? That is correct. Yeah. And were there other clues that this was going to be an inflammatory and not an infectious disorder? Uh, no, not really. I mean, he had no other manifestations of GP. He had no renal disease or rashes or any other manifestations that would suggest a vasculitis other than these lung infiltrates that wouldn't resolve. Uh -huh. And so once you did the biopsy, then what did you institute as far as therapy? Uh, so we started him on pulse-dose steroids and cyclophosphamide as well as plasmapheresis. Why that? Uh, that's the standard of care in our institution for this disease. Okay, so you're not using rituximab? We do. Um, in fact, we're planning to use rituximab for his maintenance therapy. Okay, very good. So is basically the bottom line here is that if you really think you have the diagnosis but you don't have the, the ANCA, you have to go for tissue? I think so. Um, I think you have to have a, a very um, high level of suspicion in these cases when you can't explain what's going on with the patient and keep a broad differential. Um, and you can't rule out GPA based on the absence of an ANCA. Yeah, that's, a, that's, a really, that's an important teaching mm -hmm. point. Can you talk a little bit about just the diagnostic criteria and how the diagnosis should be made? Sure. So um, part of the problem is, is we don't have great diagnostic criteria. We have the old um, 1990 criteria for the classification of Wagner's granulomatosis. It's 2018. We might be behind. Correct. We're a little bit behind. And they actually were created before ANCA testing was available. Uh -huh. um, and currently there's um, a study being undertaken by a combination of ULAR and ACR to create new, um, better diagnostic criteria for vasculitis. Well, so that'll be really important, especially mm -hmm. diagnosis like this so mm -hmm. um, how much after the diagnosis what's the history after uh, was the, what's, how, how was the patient done yeah so he responded very well to treatment um, he was extubated within a week um, and at this point um, he is finishing his cyclophosphamide um, and his uh, lung function seems to be back to normal and he's doing fairly well he's out of the hospital he is out of the hospital yes interesting case thank you very much for bringing thank you it. Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate coming to you from RWCS 2019 and today I'm here with Dr. Anna Lafian who's one of our really amazing fellows this year. I'm really proud of them and she's going to tell us about her poster. Anna, where are you from? I'm actually from Loma Linda. Well, I'm from Los Angeles but I'm doing my fellowship at Loma Linda University. That's awesome. Well, we're really glad you made the trip to come see us. So tell me about your poster. All right. So should I grab this from you? All right. To start off with, so I'll just 
present the case briefly. Um, we had an 18-year-old, previously healthy um, Hispanic 18-year-old female, who basically presented for two weeks of progressive nausea, vomiting, and intractable hiccups. Um, she then um, was intubated for airway pr protection because she had seizing at the outside hospital and was transferred to our facility for higher level of care. Um, so at that point, we um, had an MRI that basically showed edema from the medulla all the way to the conus, um, started to get autoimmune workup. She had a, a lumbar puncture, so her lumbar pu puncture was um, consistent with lymphocytic pleocytosis. Um, the NMOs of the CSF, the aquaporin-4, actually came back high titer, um, as did the serum aquaporin-4. Um, at that point, obviously, we hadn't waited for these studies to come back because that takes quite a while, but um, we had suspected, given the transfer, extensive transverse myelitis, we had suspected NMO spectrum disorder and actually started her on pulse dose steroids for five days. Um, we also um, started plasmapheresis um, and rituximab also. We did the weekly 375 um, milligrams per meter square dosing. Um, she had great response. She was extubated after two days. She started to actually have, um, I, th I think I may have failed to mention also after she got transferred to us, she became, um, she had paraparesis, basically couldn't move her limbs. So she started to have sensation and movement, all of that. And then within a month and a half, she was up and walking. So Anna, sometimes this can look confusing, especially to someone who doesn't see this normally. It's, and if you're a rheumatology, tell me about potential for infection. Was there ever a thought process that this could be an infectious process for this patient? Absolutely. So um, we took care of this patient in collaboration with um, neurology and neuro ICU. Um, however, the initial thought um, per them was actually that this was probably a viral infection, and so she was being treated with antivirals throughout the course of our treatment as well, um, because these things, again, the studies don't come back for some time. Um, so, however, that thought kind of dwindled off after we found this diagnosis, and then when she was seen for follow-up in our clinic, we um, actually had... Um, further records from the outside facility prior to her transfer, and we found this. So her West Nile virus in the CSF was positive, um, the IgG was positive. Um, and so that just led me to wonder um, that that was probably her trigger, like the viral trigger that set off the anim NMO spectrum disorder in this severity. So given that information, do you think that this is, it's not a common case, but do you think that there could be an infectious etiology that almost, like you said, triggers this for other patients? And should we be looking for other infectious opportunities for our patients and making sure that we're, we're, treating, them, we're treating the patient, not just potentially one thing? Absolutely. For me, I think it was just really fascinating because ever since starting fellowship, you know, every lecture that I've been through, I really do hear like that there's a genetic component that takes up, you know, 10 to 15, 10 to 20 percent. And then there's an environmental component, which is made up by viral triggers and other exposures and things of that nature. And I always wondered what that viral trigger was. And, you know, we read about cases reported of EBV and other viruses that can trigger um, things. But I, it was so fascinating to to potentially have like a theory about this case and what it could have been. Well, I think this is a great case and it really does highlight what we need to be doing as clinicians and treating our patients. Thank you so much, Anna, for coming. We're glad you're here. Hopefully you'll come back next year and we'll have a follow-up on our patient as well. But check us out on roomnow.com for further information and come join us in Hawaii at RWCS 2019. Hi, I'm Jack Cush. I'm here at RWCS 2019 in Maui. We're looking at the posters that the fellows brought to the meeting, a lot of interesting ones. I'm here with Leanna Wise. Leanna, where are you now? 
I'm in Los Angeles, training at LAC USC Medical Center and Keck Medical Center. Excellent. So you have this case of something that I'm really interested in, and that is MDA-5 and um, its association with dermatomyositis. Tell us something about the case. So this is a 62-year-old woman who came to our institution. She had been complaining to a few outside providers of some kind of nonspecific symptoms, mild dyspnea, some arthralgias, just generally not feeling well, and was getting a workup as outpatient. But after about two and a half months, her symptoms all started to worsen, and she developed worsening dyspnea, a um, diffuse rash, and some other symptoms as well. At that time, she saw a dermatologist and rheumatologist and received a tentative diagnosis of dermatomyositis. But unfortunately, before a further workup could happen, she really decompensated from a respiratory standpoint. And by that, I mean that she eventually had multiple admissions for um, supplemental oxygen and eventually was started on high-dose steroids. She was then transferred to our institution for higher level of care. And at that point, the diagnosis of MDA5 dermatomyositis was pretty set in stone. Because these patients are so um, usually so sick and present so severely, we kind of threw a lot at her. So we ended up giving her additional steroids, including um, a course of a three-day course of pulse steroids, cyclophosphamide, IVIG, plasmapheresis, and even a tacrolimus drip. Um, and the purpose of all this was because her lungs looked so, um, so her lungs looked so bad. So that was really the driver for our treatment. So let's go back a little bit. So you only get to MDA five after a diagnosis of dermatomyositis is on the table. Correct. Right? So the rheumatologist, dermatologist made the diagnosis based on skin, labs, what? So, wasn't, she wasn't that weak, right. So interestingly, her labs um, were not very characteristic for dermatomyositis. So she had a normal CK, normal adelase, and a very transient um, kind of waxing and waning elevation in her AST, ALT. But she did, and we didn't see the rash because she had so much steroids by the time she came to us, but she apparently did have a very faint shawl sign um, and uh, V sign and maybe some rash on the extremities, but nothing that screamed dermatomyositis. Um, but the rheumatologist the outpatient rheumatologist um, was astute enough to still suspect it, and that's what prompted her to order that panel. So ordering a panel got the MDA-5. Correct. Um, in your reading about MDA-5, what's the association? Why is that something rheumatologists need to know about? So it is, it's, it's present in um, anywhere from 5% to about 30% of dermatomyositis patients, but it ha can have a very heterogeneous presentation. The studies that have come out of Asia, um, it's associated with rapidly progressive ILD, and that's what scares us the most, is that these patients may have some mild dyspnea on exertion, but it really escalates fast, and they become very, very sick to the point of um, we're unable to kind of rein in the, the underlying process. So not only is it associated with ILD, but it can also have pretty significant cutaneous findings, including um, uh, mouth ulcers and um, ulcerative lesions throughout the body, which are very unique to MDA5 and not to the other dramatic myositis subtypes. Um, My patients have had really severe ulcerative finger lesions mm -hmm. and, uh, and, off, and a few that was the reason they presented. Mm -hmm. Other ones I've had were sort of like yours that it was, they, it was this big lung presentation mm -hmm. and really fell into the hands of the pulmonologist and then sort of very late the rheumatologists get involved at that point a lot of lung mm -hmm. damage and that's the problem identifying them late yeah there's a significant morbid if not mortal yeah. risk of that and i think also to complicate the picture is a large percentage of these patients are clinically amyopathic so mm -hmm. in the asian populations it is mda5 is very strongly associated with lack of myositis in the u.s population the association is not as strong although our caucasian patient did not have myositis when do you think the rheumatologist should order an mda5 
I think if the picture is very confusing, I think if this screams full-blown dermatomyositis, I think it's just an extra lab test that won't won't change your management. But like this patient, she had just such vague symptoms, and she started to um, she just started to worsen quickly. And I think if you're if you're not sure certain what's happening and the patient's getting sicker, I would rather have more information to know how to approach these patients. But again, she just had such a vague picture when she came in to the outside um, rheumatologist, the outside dermatologist, and I think the MDA-5 helped up to at least start treatment sooner rather than later. So I thought, and I would then go back, I agree that kind of when you're really stuck and you've already had your evaluation, you don't know where you're going to go next, it might be a, a um, part of a panel, but mm -hmm. certainly people who have this lung um, presentation, mm -hmm. which is yeah. not that common in, in uh, myositis or metamyositis, or even worse, ulcerative lesions mm -hmm. or ulcerations, mm -hmm. like you said, mm -hmm. that might be a good reason to also mm -hmm. order the test. So, um, what's happened to the patients? Unfortunately, she passed away. Um, so we tried a lot for about a month, and she eventually was on ECMO, high settings of ECMO that we weren't able to wean down. And her primary team, the ICU team, was able to wean sedation and actually have a goals of care discussion with her. And, yeah. and, and you know what? That's a lousy ending, but you know what? It's pretty common with this, yeah. this subset, yeah. these MDA5s, their yeah. lung disease. And they call it, like the, in, as you say, in, in Southeast Asia, they call it rapidly progressive. Mm -hmm. but it, uh, I have probably, I don't know, six patients, and yet same outcome. Yeah. Two, two died, and they died from their lung disease. Yep, yep, so, unfortunate. So early identification, really aggressive therapy, mm -hmm. and knowing about MDA5. Yeah. Cool case, thanks. Yeah, thank you. All mm -hmm. right, watch more posters from RWCS. Mm -hmm. Hi, I'm Jack Cush. We're here at RWCS 2019 in Maui. Great meeting. Even better are the posters brought here by the, the fellows. I'm here with Mike Putnam. He's a fellow at? I'm at Northwestern in Chicago. Excellent. You're, what year is last year? I'm a second year, but I'm staying on for a third research year, so I'll be around a little superb, longer. Superb. <laughs> Mike is the host of the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. Check it out on iTunes or on wherever you get podcasts. Um, I listen to him. It's great. Um, Mike, tell us about this poster. I think it's kind of interesting. You sort of attempted to look at control trials in the rheumatology literature. What was the purpose? What was your objective? Yeah, so um, I had a couple things I was curious about. One was, over time, have the, has the quality of trials changed? And then a couple other things related to whether uh, industry funding or not industry funding affects the quality of trials and um, how big the effect sizes in the rheumatologic literature were. And so I kind of assessed a couple of different questions. So what, what, what was your choice? What, what trials were you going to go to? Obviously, you could choose millions, <laughs> and that's just in rheumatology. Yeah. What, so what did you hone down to? So I decided to narrow in on randomized controlled trials mm -hmm. that specifically assessed a pharmacological intervention against a comparator, whether that's placebo or an active comparator, such as another medication. And are these rheumatology trials? Yeah, so I looked at the top three rheumatologic journals, the Annals, Rheumatology, and Arthritis and Rheumatology. Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then I looked at 1998, 2008, and 2018. And I just read every single randomized controlled trial in those years. So different diseases, different drugs? Yep, all sorts of diseases and all sorts of, all sorts of drugs. So why did you do a cross-section like that as opposed to, let's just say, focusing on PSA trials or RA trials? Yeah, good question. I thought about doing just RA and doing more years, but um, I felt like uh, getting a broad swath of the rheumatologic literature would kind of let me be more generalizable. Okay, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what, what was your takeaway? What, what, what did you find, or did you find anything that surprised you? Yeah, so we found, um, we looked over, ultimately 85 trials wound up making the cut. Over time, not a lot changed. There was a small increase, there was statistically significant in sensitivity analysis and intention to treat, 
but an overall quality scale did not show any differences. Industry funding was interesting. Industry trials tended to be better. They're more likely to use blinding, they're more likely to use um, patient-reported outcome measures, and they're more likely to use an attention to treat analysis, and on a quality scale, they were more likely to be better. And so um, I found those are the main differences between those two variables. And, and it makes sense because their yeah. objectives are to get their drugs FDA approved and the FDA rules and guidelines on doing the right trial are pretty standard, pretty well known. Um, and mm -hmm. other people that do trials don't necessarily have to hold themselves up to that standard. So interesting. Yeah, I think it's an incentives thing where the incentive for industry is to run good trials right. so that they can get the FDA to approve the drug. Absolutely. The incentive does cut in a way that I think is a little bit um, less optimistic. So in 1998, almost half of our trials um, included an active comparator, so methotrexate against a TNF. Um, by 2018, it was only one in 10. And so a lot of what we're doing these days is comparing an active drug against placebo as opposed to a drug against another drug. And I think we're losing out by not doing those kinds of trials because there's a lot of times when you want to know what should you give for myositis and we don't know. And I'll give you my perspective on this as someone too old um, in that the reason that was going on uh, compared to today, the drugs in 2008 and 2018 are newer drugs and there's a lot of new drugs being developed. And hence, the objective is just get it to market, get yeah. it FDA approved, and there you only do placebo-controlled trials. Um, in 1998, that's when infliximab and etanercept yep. uh, started, <laughs> yeah. and Areva was started at that time. But up until then, there wasn't a lot of drugs. So if there were studies happening, it was 1998. These would have been studies that were done before 1998. Yeah. People are looking for the answers for the currently marketed drugs, and so you're more likely to see these head-to-head -head comparisons. So in, yeah. in the life cycle of a drug, you start out with a lot of placebo-controlled trials, mm -hmm. and then maybe over time you get into more comparator trials. Um, but I, th I agree with you. I think comparator trials are what people are asking for now, because yeah. sometimes you're faced with a A, B, or C decision, and, it's, and the placebo is not one of those choices. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's usually not a good option. Right. So, yeah. I think optimistically, a lot of this is us being a victim of our own success, which is a positive finding. It's a good problem to have, right? <laughs> it is. Um, I'm always confused by funnel plots. Tell us what that was about. This is a fun one. Let me walk you through it. Yeah. So on the on this axis is the um, precision of the trial. I use the number of participants in the study as a surrogate for that. So around here is about 500 participants, and around here is zero. Mm -hmm. And then um, some trials report absolute risk reduction, so that's the blue dots. And then some report percent improvement, that's the green dots. And I overlaid those on each other so the scale is the same. And so a trial here has five participants and a 50% absolute risk improvement. Mm -hmm. um, so what you see from this chart, which I think is relatively striking, is that small trials have a much larger um, percent improvement or absolute risk improvement. Mm -hmm. And so you see a large effect size with smaller studies. And as your end goes up, and hence the precision of the trial improves, um, you see a smaller and smaller effect trial. So it's kind of a reminder to not trust, uh, trust small trials. And the second thing is that there's a, there's a total lack of negative trials. <laughs> um, That's the reporting bias. Yeah, right? I, think, I think there's two takes that are both reasonable. The first is that there's an incredible amount of reporting bias and that we're just publishing positive trials and that all these negative ones either don't happen, mm -hmm. or they get censored somehow, or the journals aren't interested. A more optimistic take is that by the time you get to a randomized controlled trial, um, you're probably testing a therapy that you think works if you're going to spend all that money. And so the pretest probability of success is actually a little bit higher. Mm -hmm. And so if that's true, then we would expect, you know, this to be the center of the funnel plot as opposed to zero. Right. And so maybe this little mound here is what's happening. It depends on how you squint at it. <laughs> what about those 
crazy yeah. outliers out there. Are those the most successful trials in rheumatology? Yeah, like this one right here was phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a couple with large effect sizes that were large, and yeah, I mean, every once in a while you do hit a home run that in a large, large randomized controlled trial, you see a, this is a 50% improvement, you know? All right, so having studied this over 1998, 2008, 2018, what's your advice to pharma when they're making up their next three trials for the next three years? You know, that's a good question. And, and this kind of goes back to what I was saying about incentives. You know, I think pharma is responding to incentives that are appropriately driving the creation of good trials. Um, I think the onus is on us as clinicians to try to fill the gaps that um, these incentives aren't driving. So I think that um, doctors need to be running these um, comparative effectiveness trials to see whether we should be using Imuran or Celsept for myositis and things like that. Um, I think that would be a, a good direction to go. I mean, 84% of the of RCTs are funded by pharma, and so trying to find more creative ways or cheaper ways to fund trials ourselves, I think, is actually my, my take-home solution. All right. Mike, great poster. The Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. Check it out. Um, more good posters, more good videos from RWCS. Thanks so much. <laughs>
Um, so at this point, when we saw um, the, these labs, and in order to further work up the urinalysis, which showed 100 protein, we actually got a 24-hour urine, which showed 1.8 grams of proteinuria. And so we wanted to get a renal biopsy to determine if this was lupus or an ankyovasculitis presentation. Um, at this point, the patient admitted to cocaine use, um, but his last use was actually several months ago, so it seemed that the methamphetamine and heroin was more at the, um, the more relevant drug use at the time. Um, we ended up getting a renal biopsy um, and we discharged him home on prednisone. Um, he unfortunately had a lot of hospitalizations after that initial hospitalization. I mean, he really didn't come to his, any of his follow-up appointments. Um, one of his hospitalizations, we saw that he had constrictive pericarditis. Um, he had renal insufficiency. We gave him steroids again. We started him on Plaquenil and Celsept, but there were issues of medication adherence. Um, and then he also had multiple PEs, and we started him on anticoagulation. Um, and so this led us to you know, further work up what was going on because he had all these positive antibodies, but we know that levamisole could definitely cause the positive Pianca and the MPO and PR3, but could it also be responsible for some of the other labs. And so from preparing for the presentation um, and learning more about the case. Um, I saw that with levamisole, you can ha definitely have a positive ANA, a positive double-stranded DNA, um, positive ANCA with both MPO and PR3, and you can also have a positive lupus anticoagulant, many of the labs which he did have. Um, and so some of the key points to take away from the presentation was that more recently, um, although we associate levamisole with um, cocaine, it's now being found in heroin. So in patients that um, are using really any types of IV drugs, it might be worth to send off um, for a levamisol level, um, making sure you check a Utox. You can always check an anti-elastase antibody, which is both um, sensitive and specific for levamisol-induced vasculitis. Um, but because of um, our findings, we really do feel that this patient has a drug-induced lupus, antiphospholipid syndrome, and um, ANCA-associated vasculitis. Nina, thank you so much. I think this is a really good case because it really does show us that it's important to talk to your patient. You know, they, we need to know that they're being honest with us, especially when they come into the hospital. Do you find that the anti-elastase antibody is something that is easily drawn in a community setting? Do you, I think it is. And yeah, and I think that that's something we can all look forward to. So anytime you have an atypical presentation of something with... Um, multiple antibodies, it's always important to ask about drug use. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I did not know that um, levamisole was a cutting agent for heroin. So I learned something, well, in addition to everything that you just taught me. Thank you so much for being here. We've really enjoyed it. And that's all from RWCS 2019 for right now. Check us out on roomnow.com. Hi, it's Dr. Artie Cavanaugh, RWCS 2019, and we're very pleased to have a number of posters and case presentations and other academic uh, presentations by a, a really good group of fellows that we're pleased to have with us at the meeting this year. This is Dr. Hanif, who comes to us uh, from Detroit, from Wayne State University, Henry Ford Hospital System. Going to talk to us about a, a case she has showing the overlap of things we see in rheumatology with some of our other disciplines. Dr. Hanif? 
Thank you, Dr. Kavanagh. Very nice meeting you, and I'm, I, I have, I'm having a great time here at Hawaii with the nice weather, which is a shift from the Detroit's weather. So, <laughs> thank you so much for the invitation. So, I'll talk about um, a fascinating case that I had about um, scleroderma or malignancy. Um, it was a diagnostic and therapeutic dilemma because the symptoms could be attributed to either malignancy or scleroderma. So, it was a veteran, um, a 61-year-old gentleman, who presented with lightheadedness, dysphagia, um, dinophagia, and uh, his symptoms really started about one year ago, um, and that was a sequela. Um, one year ago, going back, he had um, Raynaud's phenomena, and he noticed the skin thickening diffusely um, at the outside hospital. They did a biopsy that showed morphia, or localized scleroderma pattern. Um, off note, his serologies at that time, ANA was six to one is to 640. Um, the typical antibodies that you would expect to see in a scleroderma, the SCL70 and T-centromere were negative. What was positive was RNP polymerase 3. Um, they also did a CT thorax at that time. They thought it might be a esophageal duplication cyst. They did not progress further and he was enrolled in one of the scleroderma um, trials at the scleroderma center of excellence at a, at a university hospital for tocilizumab. Um, so in our hospital, when he presented a year later, he had symptoms of orthostatic hypertension. He was not even able to swallow his saliva. The imaging showed, um, um, the CT scan showed diffuse mediastinal hilar lymphadenopathy. Um, echo was normal. So in our, um, during the second day of his hospitalization, he had acute respiratory distress and EBUS was done and it showed aggressive stage three diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, non-Hodgkin's type. Off note, all this happened within a year of his diagnosis. He completed his chemotherapy, four cycles. He was on EPOC regime. In five months, if you notice the difference in the CT scan, post-chemotherapy, we can expect the improvement in the mediastinal lymphadenopathy. But what was remarkable was that his skin tightening significantly improved with the administration of chemotherapy within a span of five months. So we do know that scleroderma patients have increased risk of cancer compared to general population. That could be because of damage from scleroderma as in ILD or Barrett's. The cytotoxic therapy that's used for management, it could be an inside, common inciting agent or genetic predisposition. Off note, the recent immune-related adverse effects that we noticed, um, and there is a case of scleroderma uh, reported from the immune-related adverse effects by the, the checkpoint inhibitors, such as pembrolizumab. But um, in our case, it is a unique subset um, that's been described with concurrent onset of scleroderma and cancer. There's a group um, by Shah, led by Shah John Hopkins. Um, he has noticed a striking temporal clustering of cancer diagnosis within a year um, or within first few years of first science, um, clinical science of scleroderma. Um, in one study, they actually found a 5.08-fold increased risk of cancer within two years of scleroderma onset in those with positive RNP polymerase 3 antibodies. So is it the RNP polymerase 3 that should be a red flag for us to search further for any other signs of cancer? Because in, in, in this study has been replicated in Australia 
when they notice at least a fourfold increase in cancer diagnosis within the first five years of signs of scleroderma. So what they hypothesize is the mutated RNA polymerase 3 proteins to be immunogenic that initiate anti-RNA polymerase 3 antibody response. So my conclusion and what the take-home point would be that cancer-induced autoimmunity may occur in a subset of patients with these positive RNP polymerase 3 antibodies. Um, we may describe scleroderma as a paraneoplastic disease, and these antibodies should be a red flag that should warrant more aggressive cancer screening. In our case, chemotherapy almost resolved skin tightening. Thank you so much. Uh, excellent. What an interesting case really brings to, to uh, into play a lot of considerations that we have with our patients with scleroderma. I guess, will you follow this patient? Because he may actually be cured if you took care of the cancer, and that was the cause of the scleroderma. Unfortunately, he passed away last year due to complications of chemotherapy, neutropenic fever, sepsis, septic shock. Well, that highlights the danger of a very aggressive treatment for scleroderma. made the skin better, but uh, so it sounds like a, a bad outcome. But uh, good learning experience. Thank you so much for the presentation. And thank you from RWCS 2019.